there's probably a lot of people, you know, listening and, and you're, there is an injustice that is just not okay mm-hmm. on your watch. It's just not okay. Maybe it's, you know, kids being trafficked. Maybe it's people going uh, to bed hungry every night. You know, what that issue is, I wanted to kind of give people a playbook and say, maybe you actually could pursue that. Welcome to Impact the World, where this week I am speaking to none other than Scott Harrison. Scott is the founder and CEO of Charity Water. Many of you may have heard of Charity Water over the years. They do an incredible job with the way that they share the stories of what they do, which is helping bring clean water to every person on the planet. That's their mission. And they've been doing this for 16 years. I first heard of them a little over four years ago. Immediately, we became one of the supporters each month because I was so impacted by the work they do and the way that they do it. So it was a real delight for me to get to speak to Scott directly today and ask him some questions, not just about charity water, but about how he found his way to this life of service that he has committed himself to. He's a very inspiring and energized and creative guy. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. And as ever, if you enjoy our show, it really helps if you leave us a rating, a review, or hit subscribe. But for now, here is Scott Harrison, and you can learn more about Charity Water at charitywater.org. So welcome, Scott, to Impact the World. And as I just shared with you, it's a complete delight for me to have you here. Thanks for having me. This will be fun. Well, the podcast is called Impact the World. And just in my own personal life, uh, you are somebody who has impacted the world in a phenomenal way. I first heard about you I think it was 2017 or 2018, I saw one of the incredible videos about what you were doing. And that was the point that I signed my company up to be part of the spring. And uh, yeah, and and so just watching the watching not only what you've done, but also the incredible way that you do it. I think it's so vital. So firstly, thank you for what you've done. And secondly, for anybody who doesn't yet know Charity Water, how could you tell them about it to start off with or how how it came to you this idea yeah well it's it's a it's kind of like the name suggests we're a charity that helps people get clean water um so you know as we as we record this right now uh there are about 771 million people uh, around the world that are drinking dirty water uh, unsafe contaminated water so it's about one in ten people alive right now. Uh, and, you know, uh, I'm sure almost everybody listening, we're, we're in the 90% where, you know, maybe we took water for granted as we went through our day today, as we made our coffee or brushed our teeth or took a long shower, or, you know, washed uh, the, the kids' clothes. So that's really the issue that, you know, I've been focused on now for 16 years. And I think that everybody on earth should have clean water to drink. So I, I believe that 771 million people number should be a zero. And everybody should have access to, you know, life's most basic need. Um, I got into this uh, 16 years ago, really by by way of uh, the nightclub business. So maybe not the traditional path into humanitarian work. Uh, I'd moved to New York City when I was 18 to become a club promoter. To the horror of my parents, you know, rebelling against my very conservative Christian background, I thought that 
throwing parties and drinking and having sex and doing drugs would be a, a perfect way to kind of, you know, give everybody the middle finger. And uh, unfortunately, I did that for 10 years uh, and, and worked at 40 clubs uh, in, in New York City and, and kind of came up to the top of that game, uh, throwing these, you know, high-end fashion and music parties. But with that success also came a deep sense of, of emptiness, you know, realizing I was living only for myself. I was effectively just getting people wasted for a living. And, you know, I, I, I realized this at 28 years old and, and just kind of hit, hit rock bottom and said, look, if I died today, I'm going to make zero impact on the world. Uh, I w actually would have had a negative impact on the world, I believed. And that led me to a pretty extreme decision to sell everything I owned and volunteer for one year with a group of doctors and medical professionals in West Africa. Uh, and I just thought, you know, maybe I could have some skills that would be useful to the world, useful to others. And it was on that uh, humanitarian volunteer uh, year in West Africa that I saw the water crisis and I saw people drinking dirty water for the first time. And that just stuck with me. I, I couldn't believe that I lived in a world where a guy like me could sell bottles of water in nightclubs for $10 to people who wouldn't even open the water and would just let it sit there. And yet so many people were, were dying because they, they didn't have clean water to drink. So decided uh, 16 years ago to make that my mission and, and work as hard as I could until I died to to bring clean water to the world. And I've heard you say that if you achieve that mission, you will then place that focus somewhere else to, to where else in the world needs help. So, well, yeah, I mean, that, that feels a little premature. You know, we've, uh, <laughs> we've charity water now has helped 15 million people across 29 countries, but that's only one fiftieth of the work that needs to be done. Hmm. So, you know, we're at 2% of, of the way there. Hmm. So I, I, that, That'd be a great problem to have, you know, when we can drop the mic and everybody has clean water uh, for yeah. sure. And we could focus on, you know, another basic need. Maybe it's hunger or shelter or safety, you know, for children. But right now it's, uh, it, it continues to be water. I heard you tell the story about when you were volunteering, you were at a, at a, a stadium where you had room to treat 1500 people. Yeah. And 5,000 people showed up. And that was when you made the connection that all of these people with these all kinds of different diseases and skin diseases and all kinds of issues, it was the water that, that needed to be solved. So was that, was that like a light bulb moment for you? Yeah. Or was it a period of time where you figured out, okay, this is what I want to do? Yeah. Um, that was, that was a really important moment uh, in my journey. So I had, it was my third day in Africa. Uh, I was embedded as a photojournalist with a group of volunteer surgeons and doctors and nurses who were operating on a hospital ship. So a uh, very cool organization. You know, they took this huge ocean liner, they gutted it, they turned it into, they turned this cruise ship into a hospital ship and then would sail it up and down the coast of Africa. And they'd been doing this for 25 years. And when they pulled into a port, uh, they had announced the coming of these doctors from the West uh, who were going to offer free medical treatment and people would come from all over. And, you know, you, you described that moment. Well, uh, I, I should have known how many people would come when the government gave us the football stadium in the center of the, the city. 
uh, and you know the, the soccer stadium. And I knew that we had 1,500 available surgery slots to fill. Uh, and as you said, you know, my third day there, 5.30 in the morning, uh, we pull up to the stadium in this convoy of doctors and surgeons and nurses, and there's 5,000 people standing in the parking lot. So I knew in that moment, we're going to send 3,500 sick people, sick, desperate people home with no treatment, with no chance to see a doctor because we don't have enough doctors. Uh, we don't have uh, a, enough resources to serve them. And I later learned that many of these people had not come from that country, Liberia, we were in. They had walked from neighboring countries, some of them for more than a month. So imagine walking with your child more than a month on foot and then getting there too late. And you're 1,700 in line or 1,900 in line. So that was a, a really important moment for me. And then I did later learn that's that half of the people in the country were drinking dirty water. So 50% of the people in the country were drinking dirty water every day. And I learned that half of the disease in the country was because people were drinking dirty water and didn't have access to sanitation and toilets uh, or, or hygiene, you know, hand washing. So that uh, was kind of the question behind the question. You know, so many of these people didn't need to be there sick if they just had the most basic need for health met. And that kind of led me to, uh, to that issue of water. One of the things that you've shared, which I found very interesting, because with somebody like you, Scott, you clearly have this incredible level of empathy that drives you to action. And I was wondering, you've, you've shared what happened with your family when you were younger and your, your mother's immune issues that developed uh, from the toxicology in the apartment that you were living in. Um, do, do you do you look at that and put the two together in terms of what propelled you to have the empathy to to kind of walk towards something like this? Or do you think that's just coincidence? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I grew up uh, an empathetic kid taking care of a sick mom. Uh, my mom had carbon monoxide poisoning, as you said, and was became an invalid uh, from the time that I was four years old uh, and never recovered. Um, you know, I wanted to be a doctor when I was a kid. I wanted to help sick kids or sick sick people like her. Um, and then I was kind of a punk teenager that wanted to do what I wanted to do. And, and I would say, you know, a lot of the empathy went out the window. Um, right. I was not an empathetic club promoter. <laughs> I was, I don't think I made a single gift to charity in 10 years. You know, I was about selfish, hedonistic living. Um, and I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, we return to faith at 28. You know, I'd kind of been brought up in the church and I had to go to church and, you know, the, the morality and the spirituality was kind of pushed down to me. So I rejected all of that full stop. And then kind of coming to the end of my hedonism and finding that, you know, the emptiest place, you know, I really did take another look at, at faith and spirituality as a 28 year old kind of opting back in. And I think that uh, allowed my heart to be opened to, you know, to care about others. And, you know, I remember reading in the Bible, uh, this verse that said, true religion is to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Mm. And I remember I was like, I'm 0 for 2. I mean, I've done nothing for a single widow and orphan. And not only am I polluted, I actually pollute others for a living. You know, the more people do drugs or, you know, get wasted at our clubs, the more money they spend, the later they go home, 
you know, five or seven in the morning, the more money I make. So yeah, my, my kind of return to faith had a lot to do with it. Um, and I just thought, you know, what if I live this out by just finding a, an inarguable common good, clean water and made that my mission. Um, and I should say, you know, Charity Water is not a faith-based organization. We never have been. Uh, I get to live out my personal theology, you know, through my work every day. But I wanted to create an organization that no matter what you believed, um, you probably could believe in clean water. And that would be that that common thread that we could bring, you know, a really diverse group of people together. And that's been that's been fun over the years because some of our donors are far right and some are far left. And, you know, if you put them in a room, they would fight to the death about every political or social issue. But they can agree, you know, that people need this basic thing, you know, to to thrive in life. So it's been it's been kind of fun. Uh you know, con convening people of, of differences over the years as well around this. Well, and I, I love that your ability with club promoting and organizing and, and mobilizing groups of people in one direction, it then transposed brilliantly because you share about how your first fundraiser was was kind of the 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 doorway, the, op the opener to Charity Water and, and how yeah. it all began. Yeah, I mean, I think that was the skill that that I learned. And in some ways today, you know, I'm 47 in a couple of weeks and I'm still promoting. I'm just promoting something very different for the last 16 or 17 years. Um, yeah, it, it was a fun kind of turn. Uh, day one of Charity Water was a party in a nightclub. And I went to some club owners and I said, will you give me the club for free? Will you give up open bar for an hour? And instead of putting all the money in my pocket, I'm going to charge everyone a $20 donation to get in the club and we'll take a hundred percent of whatever we raise and we'll help as many people get clean water as possible. And uh, we raised $15,000 that night, which was enough for our first well in Northern Uganda. And we took a hundred percent of all the money we collected. We built that first well. And then we sent the photos and the GPS coordinates, the, the, the Google earth satellite images of the well uh, and, and actually a couple others that we did back to the 700 people. And we said, you came, you know, maybe you don't even remember coming because you had such a good time, but you came and you gave $20. And here are the people a world away whose lives have been changed by that money. Uh, here is the impact that you've made. And people are now drinking clean water because of you. And we realized there was such a, a simple power in just closing the loop and just showing a donor, here's where your money went. Here are the people whom your gift helped. And that, that that was actually a pretty big gap in the in the charitable sector. It's interesting because I think I remember getting the first email from you, not you know, it must be like four something years ago, and being quite blown away by the, the level of detail you give about where the money has gone and what what it, yeah, it was it was a game-changing moment for me in a way but i will i will say that if it wasn't for your skill with connecting those of us who might want to help with the messaging and the way that you were able to tell the story i remember the first video presentation i saw i think it i don't know how long it was eight minutes ten minutes and you it know might have you been played, 19 minutes no it was long <laughs> i think it's I, long yeah i remember sending it to a few of my team members and a few of my friends and i think i said now this is long but stay with it and yeah. everybody was like at the end of the 19 minutes you're just you 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 can't stop watching what you're watching so you know hats off to you all for doing that and one thing that i've heard that you 
do that I really feel and see. You said you didn't want to pr- pl- play on pre- people's guilt yeah. or pity, uh, which is often the way that charities would do it. Yeah. So I think that's been a brilliant ethos that you've had. You've kept your messaging, as you say, very inspirational. And of course, that has a magnetic effect for those of us who might want to help. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, a lot of charities use guilt and shame and uh, you know, make people feel guilty about what they have. And I mean, it works actually, but nobody wants to wear the t-shirt of the charity that makes them feel shame and guilt. Nobody wants to go and tell their friends, hey, I just ran into this great nonprofit organization. They made me feel terrible about myself. Um, and I gave them some money, you know, begrudgingly. So, you know, I, I, I used kind of the example very early on. I was emulating Nike and Apple, um, Virgin, you know, some of these, you know, let's just talk about Nike for a second. If Nike was a typical charity, they would go around telling everybody how fat and lazy they were and that they should turn off the television and get off the couch and stop eating Cheetos or Doritos and, you know, go for a freaking run and lose some weight. Right. Well, that's not what Nike does. <laughs> Nike has kind of for many years believed that greatness is within everyone. Right. Mm-hmm. If you have one leg, you can climb Mount Everest. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've lost an arm, you can win the shot put competition. And they kind of tell stories of people overcoming adversity and rising to the occasion. And it makes people want to shut off the TV and put away the Doritos and actually try and go run a half mile. And tell people or wear that brand that believes in that. It's kind of a call to greatness. So, you know, Apple, the same, I mean, you can think of Apple campaigns where they didn't even show computers. It was all about creativity, you know, honoring creative thinkers. So I wanted Charity Water to honor, you know, invite people into this amazing opportunity to be generous, to be compassionate, to use their time or their talent, or their money in the service of others, and find joy in that, find purpose in that, uh, to give because you can. And the more that you give, the more you want to give, the more you want to be engaged in that. You know, I, I joke sometimes, like the first three letters in fundraising, it's fun. It's not shame raising. It's not guilt raising. You know, it is a joy to be able to share, uh, to be able to take what we've been blessed with and and bless others in our local community or in the global community. Beautiful. A quick question for you about your journey with all of this. So a bit more personal and a bit less, yeah. I guess, to do with what the organization does. Here you are 16 years later. How, how does it feel to you as who you are now to be doing what you're doing, to see the growth of it? I, I'm sure you must have changed, grown, shifted a lot over the years. But I'm I'm just wondering, like, if... Yeah, what's the growth journey been like for you to be a part of something like this this long? I mean, I think I'm generally always discontent with how little we're doing. So I'm really animated by what is possible and how little we're achieving of what's possible. And I think that has helped us grow. I mean, Charity Water raised over $100 million last year from you know donors around the world. Uh, we're hoping to raise over $120 million this year. So we're, you know, we're an organization that is at scale. Uh, we have supporters from 149 countries. But for me, like that's a fraction, you know, so that feels like a lot of money for a lot of, you know, many other organizations or other, you know, charity founders that I talk to. 
you know, for me, it should be in the billions. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I see a world awash in capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see, you know, so much opportunity. And, you know, for crying out loud, it's water. I mean, if we can't get people excited about giving water to human beings, I don't know. So I think I'm just animated by this belief that we have yet scratched the surface. You know, the best is yet to come. And if we continue to show up, if we continue to, you know, grow the organization and the programs and our global donor community, and if we're good stewards with the money and we're able to develop those relationships and show people where the money is going, then, you know, our impact in years will be an order of magnitude greater than it is today. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of about showing up and just putting in the time and putting in those 10,000 hours, um, but, but maybe staying hungry as well. Hmm. And how have you had much help or perhaps resistance from governments as you've been doing all of this? Yeah, that's a question um, I get a lot. I think that surprised me early on because so many people had said, oh, this is going to be a big challenge for you. It, it hasn't been. And then the more that I, I traveled, I mean, I've been to 71 countries now. I've been to Africa over 50 times. Um, it actually began to make sense to me. So unless it's a despotic government, not having clean water for your people is embarrassing. Mm. It's just embarrassing, right? If, if you're a government and you have to stand up at the UN and know that half of the people in your country are drinking from swamps or ponds or rivers, it's embarrassing. So we found actually the opposite. We have found governments are uh, very excited to welcome groups like ours, funding groups like ours in. Uh, we'll often do away with red tape to allow drilling rigs to enter the country faster to get through customs. We have several governments that we're working with which will match our dollars as they come in. So if we bring in a million dollars, they'll say, well, we'll use a million dollars of government funding alongside because we do want to get water coverage for, for the country. And when you think of water, it's actually not political. You're, you're not coming in with any ideology. You know, maybe even different than building schools where some, uh, some governments could be wary, right? What are they going to try to teach our children? What ideology are they, you know, bringing in? It's water. Hmm. I mean, it's water for everybody there in the village, the men, the women, the children. So we found... Uh, it's it's very easy to work with the governments. I would say many of the governments, I believe, should be doing more about it. Um, but you know, in, in so many of these countries where we work, the the resources are just so limited. Um, I'm looking for one example um, that that is a is a is a kind of crazy one. So um, I've been in New York City for the last 26 years. Just to give you an example, the New York City school budget is $22 billion and it serves a million kids. So 1 million kids going to school, $22 billion. The country of Ethiopia, where I've been to 31 times, has 120 million people in the country and the entire country's budget is $11 billion, half of the school system in New York City. So, you know, imagine, right? Half of the New York City school budget serving 120 times more people for every service that needs to happen, roads and healthcare. So, you know, I, I, sometimes a lot of people say, well, why aren't the government doing more themselves? Well, they are using a portion of that $11 billion budget on water, on healthcare, on roads, on energy, 
on infrastructure. Um, but you know, th this is a country that just lacks the resources to meet all of these needs mm. at, at scale. Mm. Well, it's funny when you said 100 million is what you you were able to raise last year, it struck me, wow, how many movies cost more than that to make each how year? How many movies have lost that much money, right? <laughs> well, yeah, that We've too. heard of these big duds, right? It's like, that oh, they too. lost $150 million because nobody went, went to see it. Yeah. Oh, I mean, Lee, you, you know, you start talking about wars and, you know, uh, stimulus. I mean, gosh, you could solve the water crisis for pennies on the dollar of some of these huge you know, stimulus bills when we print money. So, but I think that's why you're so inspiring. And I don't mean to embarrass you, Scott, in that, but, but I think, you know, for, for me, yes, Charity Water is an incredible organization. And as soon as I saw it and felt it, I, it was easy to say, oh yeah, we would love to be involved with this as I'm sure most people have that same response. Yeah. But I think also what you stand for, which is really the ethos of this show that we do is whether you are creating some impact for your local community or five people that you know, or whether you're doing it on the scale that you're doing it, it's possible. And if we have a feeling about something, we can either learn what we need, get the support we need, get the fundraising we need, but we just have to take a step in that direction. And I think that's why I find I find your personal story around creating Charity Water so inspiring. Well, One, thank you. <laughs> yeah, no. So, I, I, yeah, I don't mean to embarrass you, but I, I will ask you this, because one of the things that I learned through hearing various talks from you and, and various pieces of information, which I wasn't aware of, is how much this issue impacts women in those communities. And that was a shocker for me, as I'm sure it was for many people. Could you explain a little bit about why the burden of water falls on women and how that puts so many of them under threat and, and, and damages their health too? Yeah. The, the why is probably harder than the reality, which is culturally in every country I have ever visited in my life, you know, now over 70 countries, um, the role of carrying the water, collecting the water, uh, the role falls to the women and the girls. And, you know, in, in the best case scenario, the men are farming or working with livestock or they're off earning an income. Um, and and it's it's the job of the women to bring the water to the family. And, you know, I remember when I started Charity Water, uh, coming across this stat that just in Africa alone, 40 billion hours were wasted by women every year, just walking for water. 40 billion hours that could be productive, that could be used uh, earning income, that could be used leading the family, that could be used uh, developing the community right forward into the future, walking senselessly for water, which isn't even clean, right, for 771 million people. And as I experienced that, you know, over now 16 years and, and, and so many uh, trips to, to the field, it is, it is not hyperbole to say that many women are walking more than six or seven hours every day. And it's a seven day a week task. Because if you don't get water for your family on Saturday and Sunday, there is no water for your family on Saturday or Sunday. So you know, many women are walking up, they're waking up at three or four in the morning and they're walking out with their empty cans. They're filling it up. Sometimes they even have to wait at the water hole and then they're walking back with 40 pounds of dirty water on their back. Many of them will have to do that a couple times a day. And you know, I've heard stories of rape, 
I've heard stories of lion, hyena, crocodile attack, uh, just the, the safety issues that so many of these women face as they venture far from their home. And, you know, it, it breaks your heart to see 13-year-old girls in the middle of the school day dropping out of school because now they're coming of age and they have to help the family with, with this burden. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's really, it's, in my experience, it's exclusively a women's issue when it comes to the actual collection of water. And the amazing thing is when we're able to, let's say, drill a well in a village or, or whatever the, the correct water solution is, you know, you instantly free up sometimes more than 40 hours a week. And it always struck me when I would go into these villages and I would speak with the women and say, how is your life different now that you have clean water in the center of your village? I would always expect them to talk about how dirty the water was. Because to me, as a Westerner, you know, you see brown viscous water. You see water infested with worms or uh, you know, slugs in it sometimes. I mean, crawling with disease. And then you see clean water coming from a water point. You're like, well, that's the, the obvious benefit. They almost would never talk about the quality change in the water. They would talk about what they would do with the extra time. And I guess if you think about that, if you're working seven hours a day, seven days a week, and then instantly 49 hours are reclaimed after that well is, is built and you never have to go do that seven hour walk again, your life is so extraordinarily different than it was before. And there's now uh, lots of data uh, about the economic benefits when you provide clean water to, to people in need. And the, the greatest economic benefit is that time turned into productive work. Hmm. Um, and the UN published an 88 page paper that found every dollar invested in water and sanitation made the community four to eight times richer. Hmm. Every dollar, every pound, every euro returned four to eight X in economic benefit. And the big one was that reclaimed time turned into work. So, you know, we've heard so many stories of women that are both, you know, shocking and harrowing. Um, but then also one of my favorite stories is this woman named Helen Appio from Uganda uh, who got clean water. And we said, Helen, how is your life different now? And she was in her 60s. And she said, for the first time in my life, I am beautiful. Hmm. And, you know, we said, of course, Helen, like, we didn't get it. You're a beautiful Ugandan woman. She said, no, I don't think you understand. She said, I never had enough water for my whole family because I had to walk such a far distance and she didn't have enough help. Uh, and she said, I would always put my family first with the limited water I walked for every day. And she said, I would go last. That's what Ugandan women do. Hmm. We sacrifice for our families. And she said, I never had enough water to wash my face and my body and my clothes. And she said, now that I have all the water I can possibly take, she said, I'm looking so smart. I'm so clean. Look at me. I am so beautiful. Hmm. And, you know, I mean, we hear stories like that all across the, the 29 countries where we work, you know, just the, the simple fact of bringing clean water close to someone's home, you know, can restore dignity, uh, a lost dignity. You know, for the first time in her life, she had all the clean water that she needed nearby the house and she didn't have to walk anymore and she didn't have to make that sacrifice and put herself last. It's funny because I've heard you talk about the importance of 
taking statistics from being statistics and bringing us the story of the statistic because you've said it's very hard for us to wrap our heads around 700 million people who don't have water but if we start to hear the stories of how it's impacting them it, it does affect us and i think one of the things that shocked me with the reality of the women having to be the water collectors you said that you would see 30 year old women uh, or women in their early 30s yeah. who were like hunched over yeah. because their spine had been so adjusted by yeah. carrying this and you, you hear something like that and you you know for, for us in the western world it's just hard to wrap your head around but because you can feel it or see it or it, it makes it very easy for us to and i've i've taken athletes to africa you know i've, I've taken you know some of our donors really healthy 30 year olds and on every trip, I will ask them to walk alongside the women carrying a single 40-pound jug. Wow. And very few can finish the journey. Wow. And the women are all laughing. I mean, this is a fun thing. You know, you bring some foreigners into Ethiopia and the teenage girls are tittering and, you know, they're watching these guys in the 90-degree heat, you know, huff and puff and take breaks. And it's almost effortless for them. But like you said, that damage is done because you know, when you start at a young age and when you're carrying such a heavy weight on your back, uh, it, 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 it bends your spine. Mm. Uh, it creates, you know, a, a version of scoliosis. And so many of them, when they're carrying nothing are just are, are badly hunched over. Mm. Um, and, and that didn't need to, you know, the, the terrible irony, you know, we've done now over 111,000 water projects around the world. So we, we know a thing or two about finding water. We employ 14 or 15 different technologies now uh, across the, the portfolio. But being in a village where you know everybody is drinking dirty water, you know everybody is walking to that faraway swamp or river, and then finding out that there's a massive aquifer of clean water, you know, 200 feet, 20 stories underground, it, it's a terrible irony. And, you know, I, I remember one story, our partners were drilling a well in East Africa. And when a well is drilled, the whole community gathers, there's 300 people, they typically circle the drilling rig, you know, this heroic million dollar machine has rolled in their village, and is looking for the the thing underground that will save the lives of their children, right. And then when you you hit the aquifer, they flush the well and the water shoots a hundred feet into the sky and everybody's dancing and clapping and celebrating. And, you know, sometimes these parties will go on for hours and hours, if not days. In one of these villages, there was a woman off to the side and she was weeping when they struck clean water. And our drilling partner goes over and, and says, Hey, I don't know if you got the message. Like this is a happy day for your village. We found water. You're not going to have to walk. And, you know, he's like, why are you crying? And she says, you know, you mean to tell me my entire life for 60 years, hmm. I was walking every single day and it was right underneath my feet. Wow. My entire life, you know, and you know, you're there in that tension, like it costs $10,000, right? I mean, that's a watch for yeah. some wealthy people. Yeah. Um, that's a vacation, mm -hmm. you know, for, you know, some families and it was clean water for 300 people, but yet this woman didn't have access to that million dollar drilling machine. She didn't have access to the $10,000 as a subsistence farmer. So it was just latent, you know, and in that sense, it, it felt like it was taunting her. You know, she looked at 60 years and that's all that 
was needed mm-hmm. was to come in and find the water underneath and put in a well. Wow. You said you've done 111,000 projects now. So I'm guessing it has been the kind of thing that you just scaled as you went. So you start, you start with the first thing that you can do. And then over time, as someone at the head of an organization like this, and obviously you have a great team, you guys just keep learning and keep figuring out what you need to figure out each step of the way. Is that, is that the way you approach it? It is. And I think, you know, this hunger for, for more, I mean, we had, uh, you know, we were growing really quickly, I think because of the enthusiasm, because of the animation and the team and everybody involved. Um, and then one day you look back and you're like, wow, we gave 6,000 people every day of last year, clean water, you know, like mm-hmm. we helped 2 million people. And yeah, you know, that's like, we're filling a stadium every three and a half days. And then you kind of wake up one day and you are at scale. It was, it was funny on my last meeting, I said, yeah, I think we did about 5,000 projects last year. And then I got our annual report that just went out. I think it was 6,700 projects. Wow. So you almost, you know, you're, you're just focused on what's next instead of kind of maybe celebrating what you've done. You know, there's, mm-hmm. we haven't arrived, right? We're at 2% of the way there. So I'm not applauding the 15 million. Um, I'm not saying, oh, you know, we had a great year last year. We should just mm-hmm. try to do that again. It's no, we need to do a lot more. You know, there are so many people who could care about clean water that we have not yet reached, who haven't even contemplated this as an issue for humans or an issue that they might engage in. There are, you know, there's a myriad of resources around the world that we have yet untapped, whether that's, you know, $10 or 10 pounds, you know, from someone who could give consistently every month, or whether it's, you know, $50 million from a corporation who could just knock out a million people with clean water by writing one check. So we really feel like, you know, the best is yet to come and the work is, is very much unfinished. Yeah. How do you keep yourself uh, balanced and ready to go with it, within what you do and with, with your role? What are some well, of your my roles constantly changing? I mean, it's changed so much over the years. Um, I mean, I was doing QuickBooks in the accounting, you know, and like entering receipts in the early days and, um, now, you know, I'm, I'm speaking, I'm trying to hire the best people, the best executives for the organization, um, working on culture, uh, working on fundraising, working on innovation. Um, I, I get to spend a lot of time in the field. So I think that's one of the things that has connected me to the work. I'll be in Madagascar in a few weeks. I have not yet been to our work in Madagascar. So it's the first time that I'll see mm. the work we've been engaged in for a few years there. Um, and that'll be incredibly inspiring, uh, meeting the teams, meeting the locals on the ground that are taking the money given by our global community and turning that into clean water. Um, I should say that's a really important part of our model. Uh, we have over 2,000 locals that are employed every day, uh, building and constructing the charity water projects, and they are locals in each country, uh, Ethiopians in Ethiopia, uh, Cambodians in Cambodia. So we believe for the work to be culturally appropriate for it to be sustainable uh, it has to be led by the locals and they're the most inspiring people that i've ever met um so you know being out there with our team in madagascar in a couple of weeks will fire me up i'll come back you know with a new energy and again it'll feel so simple because i'll be in villages where i knew people were dying hmm. without this thing that cost twelve thousand dollars 
And I know people who have $12,000. And then I'll come back with the renewed energy and I'll try to ask them, you know, to, to, to meet that need. So yeah, it's kind of, it's promoting, I think the, the vision or the work and, you know, I've, I've got a six and an eight year old. So um, I've, I'm in a stage in my life where I'm also coaching baseball right. and, you know, trying to be really, really engaged and present with my, with my kids. Do your kids do lemonade stands for charity water, Scott, <laughs> or are they allowed to pick their own? <laughs> uh, it's so funny. Uh, it, you know, you would, ex that's funny. Cause like I've had kids younger than my son and somebody wrote me the other day. He's like, yeah, I was Jackson's age when I built my first $10,000 well. I'm like, uh, Jackson, you know, let's get with it. <laughs> um, he did ask me the other day how old he had to be to work at charity water. So uh, I'll see, I'm going to take them both to, to Uganda in next March. So it'll be their first trip in the field. COVID kind of delayed that, but um, we'll see. Yeah. They've raised some money. They've given some money from their allowance. They've obviously traveled with me and, and heard me speak and they know, you know, a bunch of people in the team, but um, I think I care more about the kinds of people they are than what they actually do for a living. Of I course. just want to make sure they care about others and are, are um, you know, are, are givers that they're generous. I think it would be hard for them to be, you know, your kids and to be growing up around all of this and to not have that rub off on them or influence them in some way. So, no, it's great. Um, Let's hope. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, and I'm, I'm aware that we need to wrap up the conversation fairly soon, but you, you have a book that you brought out called Thirst in 2018. And I'm most familiar with you from the videos or what I read yeah. in the emails and but I was curious, I know that the book you wrote as uh, something, all of the proceeds would go back into the organization. Yep. So that's great. How did you find the process of writing the book, first of all? Because book writing, we've had a lot of authors on the podcast, and it's yeah. interesting to hear how people find the writing process. And then I guess, what effect have you noticed the book has had as a calling card for, for the work and for the message? Yeah, well... It was a terrible process. So I, I actually consider myself a pretty good writer. Um, I was a journalism major uh, at NYU when I was I was doing the clubs, but going part-time and got a journalism degree. I, I wrote for the local newspaper when I was 13 and had a police scanner and, you know, I was always trying to get that front page story. Um, so I, I wanted to, I wanted it to be perfect. You know, I mean, I'd read a bunch of people who kind of mailed in books and I wanted it to be literary. You know, I wanted it to be really well done. Um, wound up working with, uh, with a great partner, uh, a woman named Lisa Sweetingham, who really was like my therapist by the end of it. You know, she was like, oh, so what was going on, you know, at this moment in childhood? I'm like, I don't know. I was fine. She's like, you are not fine. Let's delve deep into. So I, I had this, this great partnership and, and wound up, um, yeah, I mean, writing uh, about 100,000 words and you know, the, the decision to just give the book away. I mean, at first it was going to be my kid's college fund and, you know, it was my story. So I felt okay keeping the money. And then my wife and I got to the end and said, oh, let's just give it away. You know, it's much easier to, to give away the book advance and all the proceeds. And I think sometimes when you give things away, they, uh, I don't know, good things happen. So it became a New York Times bestseller and it, it wound up, you know, raising millions of dollars. We've, we've heard of people who have read the book and made, you know, extraordinarily large commitments to the water crisis. Hmm. Um, by the same token, I've probably had, you know, two or 300 people write me and say, you know, they've started their charity after reading the book and they're focused on a different cause. 
Um, but if a, if a nightclub promoter, you know, can go raise $700 million for a cause, you know, well, they could probably do it too. Um, so I, I really wanted it to both create awareness for this issue, you know, bring people into the charity water mission, but I also wanted it to just inspire somebody who might care about a very different cause and share some of the things we did that worked and also some of the boneheaded mistakes we made along the way and, and, and maybe uh, warn them from, from not making some of the same mistakes. Well, what would you say is one of the mistakes that you made that, that kind of was a good teaching example for you? Well, a lot of, gosh, uh, we are, this is going to be a boring answer, but not investing in systems and data and infrastructure, you know, Charity Water being led by me, a creative, I mean, we never wanted to slow down to build that critical infrastructure. I mean, I think there was a moment where we had like a million donors in an Excel sheet, right? right? I couldn't really tell you much about them right. or when they gave or, um, and, and that has, um, I think that has held us back. You know, now at scale, we have an amazing technology team and um, the, you know, we've spent years kind of trying to catch up, but I wish I had paid more attention to maybe the unsexy systems data architecture stuff, uh, CRM, you know, to be honest, early on. And, and I think that would have helped us maybe just be better stewards of some of our donor relationships. Right. You know, I, I couldn't tell you whether somebody had given $20 um, and then had given $2 million. You know, they were like on two different spreadsheets. Right. If they gave in different ways, you know, one on the website and one wrote a check. So, you know, now we're trying to, uh, obviously to to have a much more sophisticated view really for the purpose of stewardship and developing these long-term relationships with our supporters. Hmm. Well, we'll make sure we put a link not only to Charity Water, but also the book um, in the show notes. But before you go, uh, is, there, is there any piece of advice or a few pieces of advice that you would give to anyone who's watching this, feels very inspired by the fact that you have done what you did and they want to get into their own their own uh, uh, charity or organization. I know that's a big question, sure. but yeah, if there are any pieces of advice. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was was really to say, I mean, if if a you know druggy, two pack a day, you know, cigarette smoking nightclub promoter could take on a global cause and make some sort of impact, so can you. You know, I had no qualifications to be a philanthropist. I had no experience running an international, you know, NGO. Um, I didn't go to school for this. Uh, I mean, I barely went to school for journalism. I just picked that because it was easy. So, you know, I, I, I think the idea of becoming a social entrepreneur, uh, I really wanted to invite people who may not feel qualified but who do have the passion, who are willing to work hard, who are willing to infect others with their enthusiasm for that cause or for you know, ending that injustice that they see. I mean, I think there's probably a lot of people you know, listening and, and you're, there is an injustice that is just not okay mm -hmm. on your watch. It's just not okay. Maybe it's you know, kids being trafficked. Maybe it's people going uh, to bed hungry every night. You know what that issue is. I wanted to kind of give people a playbook and say, maybe you actually could pursue that. And, you know, maybe you don't need to build a global organization, but 
you know, go pursue that. Don't accept the apathy. Maybe that that's much easier to accept and say, oh, what could I ever do about a paralyzing global cause, you know, or, or, or this, this big, big global challenge. You know, you can start, you can start with one well. We started with one well. There was one birthday party and we raised $15,000 and it was the first well in Uganda. And now there's 111,000. And, you know, hopefully next year there'll be 135,000 or 160,000 as we continue to grow. Awesome. Well, thank you for not uh, accepting apathy, Scott. And thank you for, for what you've built and to your team too. And thank you for being here today. I really appreciate you coming on the show. And like I said, it was a real honor to get this time with you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Take care. See ya. I'm thrilled to announce that we are bringing initiation back for 2022. We first held it at the end of last year and it is a channeled mystery school. Even I don't fully know what my guides will bring through in the weekly transmissions, but their intent, and this is the message they've given me, is to synchronize us with the frequencies, the information and the energies for this passage of time that we're moving through. I can attest that it was very powerful last year and we had over 5,000 people join us from all around the world. So it was an incredible container. This year, we are starting initiation on October 26th. And for those of you who would like to join us live, I will be doing weekly live broadcasts where I channel my guides for 90 minutes each time and in between those live broadcasts, I like to deliver what I call a calibration video, where I will guide you through the energetic and psychological process that we go through. If you want to watch it on replay, you will have lifetime access to all of the material. So whether you can join us live or not, you will get around 10 hours worth of material. This includes a welcome MP3 message from my guides all about what the initiation journey is designed to be and what you will be inviting into your life as you take this ride with us. We are also giving you our brand new album, Timelines, which we have paired with the course and you will be receiving that two months ahead of everyone else. Alongside that, we have self-care guides and a wonderful community forum where you can share with other members of the group what you're going through, how you're experiencing it, and there is so much medicine in that community. These are always very exciting and slightly unknown events for me because in turning over to my guides as much as I'm about to, I always know that we're going to go on a very shamanic journey but it always seems to intersect perfectly with what's going on in the world at that time and what those of us who show up for the journey are bringing in and calling in for our year to come. So if initiation feels like the right call for you at the right time, we would love to welcome you. Click the link below for more details.